Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Hello again, I'm Marco Palmieri, your host for another chilling tale. And with me is my co-host, Diana Foe. Hey, Diana. Hey, Marco. I'm thrilled to be your wingwoman for another episode of Creepy Tales. Cool. And best of all, it's Halloween weekend. Woohoo! That time of year where the veil between worlds adds thinnest, as some would say. Oh, yeah. I, I used to throw the coolest Halloween parties. Not to be boastful, but... They were they were pretty awesome. Uh, and then I had kids and all that ended. Uh, but we have a particularly disturbing story uh, that combines real world horror and supernatural horror. And I think it's fair to say that this isn't a conventional Halloween tale. What do you think? I definitely think so. It still deals with creatures from beyond our realm. Um, and what, but what really kept me up after hours after I listened to it is just its sense of creepiness and dread that just keeps escalating. And lucky you listeners, this story is also so long, we need to share it in two parts, part two coming out in our next episode. The story is a slow burn, but oh so worth it as you fall under the writer's spell and get swept up in a tale of a woman trying to make a new life in Pakistan after being forced to flee the United States. And here is In the Ruins of Mohenjo-Daro by Osman T. Malik, narrated by Shiromi Arsurio. Look for the ghost trees, Memsab, the college Chokadar had told Noor, grinning from ear to ear. And indeed, the road to Mahendro-Dara was lined with them. Rows of acacia, jond, and Indian lilac stood shrouded in clouds the color of steel filigree. Noor pressed her nose to the window, watching the treetops blur and disappear in the half-breathing ether. The November dawn was clear and without a hint of fog, but the strange gray clouds stretched amoebic limbs in either direction, mile upon mile, as if the Sind riverbank was haunted by a limitless phantom coiling around the foliage. When the school bus sped past one such tree, the wind rush pulsed the specter until it filled with sunrise. Branches red dark emerged in glistening veins. Locust swarms, insect hordes, cotton candy. Nora's brain groped for an explanation. Sunlight twitched in one of the cocooned trees, and the illusion of giant blood corpuscles recurred. Nora's vision misted, her temple sizzled. For a moment, she feared the onset of a cluster headache. The last was two months ago, just after she'd joined the cadet college. It had disabled her for two days. Now was not the time for another. She stretched her neck from side to side and flinched when Junaid touched her shoulder. The headache flared. Angrily, she turned toward him. His starched white collar jutted into his neck. The striped red tie with the cadet college crest, crossed scimitars, underlaid by pine boughs, surrounded by a half moon, looked uncomfortable 
but he was beaming, brown eyes sharp and arrogant. He jabbed a stubby finger past her face. Spiders, he said, and widened his thin lips. Don't touch me again, Nor said, voice cold as glass. When he continued to grin, she looked to the roadside. White crab spiders, hundreds of them dangling in the gossamer mass blooming from the trees. Gently they swayed in the wind, milky beads studying the latticework, which she now realized was webbing. Have you seen any flies or mosquitoes since you came, Miss Hamdani? Junaid's hand rose crab-like to sprawl on the headrest in front of her. The locals told me this happened after all that flooding last year. Thousands of spiders took refuge in the trees. Out of the corner of her eye, she watched him finger a strip of leather peeling off the seat. His nails were perfectly manicured. He tore off the strip, drew it into his mouth, and spoke around it. Everyone was worried about malaria outbreaks. Guess the ghost trees took care of that. And when Nora didn't respond, What? Don't tell me you're still angry. I'm not, she said sharply. Come now, it's Eid. It's be festive and forgiving. He was sitting next to her in a row three seats wide, and his breath stirred the edge of her hijab. She edged closer to the window. He smiled and began to chew the leather strip. Kids are watching. Have to be model teachers now, don't we? Good point, asshole, she thought and closed her eyes. Another reason other than his overinflated ego, she'd spurned his advances since her arrival. Then again, this display of dickhood wasn't limited to him. Many of the faculty, all male except for a quiet, burqa-clad part-time lecturer, who disappeared as soon as her classes were over, and Tabinda, who now sat left of Junaid in the third seat, took turns leering at her during morning assembly or talking down to her at lunch. Most were graduates of cadet colleges or military academies and had carried the attitude into their professional lives. That she taught English and not history or Islamiyat hardened their stance for some reason. Her students didn't seem to care. Even though they were clearly not used to female teachers, her hijab gained her a bit of respect, something she'd seen frequently in this area. Part of the rural tradition, she supposed. Briefly, she wondered how they would react if she whipped out Oxford jeans and long white shirts, her preferred dress back in her high school days in New Hampshire, instead of the plain shalwa kermise and opata she wore now. She glanced at the boys. They'd set out raucous and excited at pre-dawn, but the motion of the bus had lulled them and they were dozing in their seats. Twelve teenage cadets, heads back, eyes closed, Athletic arms crossed over their chests or dangling off the armrest. Dara, the tall, muscular kid with sharp green Pashtun eyes, was the only one awake and staring at her. She nodded to him. He raised his chin and looked away. There's another friend I made, Nor thought, and covered the smile rising to her face with a hand. About half past ten, they entered Dokri. Junaid pointed out Cadet College Larkana to the boys as they passed it. A pink structure, flanked by red brick wings and triangular arches, opening onto the first and second floor classrooms. A cast iron gate blocked the driveway leading up to the school building. This is my alma mater. Hundreds of acres, large grounds, lots of football and hockey fields, Junaid announced. We'll stop here on the way back if you like. They left the town with its streets bustling with cloth merchants, laborers, and food vendors. Nora watched the last of the driver hotels disappear in the distance and, as always when leaving a town, was filled with loneliness, an incomprehensible nostalgia she couldn't displace no matter how hard she tried. The feeling lasted until they stopped ten minutes later to fuel up at a small, peeling gas station and the boys poured out to use the restroom and grab snacks from the mart. While Junaid and the bus driver chatted up the pump attendant, Noor slipped away. She stood behind a row of ghost cypresses and poplars along the riverbank and watched the smoke from her Marlboro light spiral its way through the spider cocoon swaying above her. Dozens of insects hung dead or twitching in it. 
Hundreds of eyes glinted. If she reached out with her cigarette, could she set the whole thing ablaze? Quite a sight, isn't it? said a familiar voice. Nor snuffed out the smoke on the bark of the nearest tree before turning. Tabinda leaned against a poplar, gazing thoughtfully at the water shining through gaps in the verdure. Cigarette? Nor said. She'd never seen the professor smoke. Tabinda smiled. She was a plump woman in her sixties, with a bovine face and horn-rimmed glasses. Her teeth were rotten, but her smile reached her eyes. That shit you smoke? Nah. She thrust a chubby hand at Nor, as if offering to shake. Look at my hand, near the wrist. See where the two tendons join? It used to be easier to find when I was thinner, but can you see the dip in the skin? Nor looked at the concavity at the base of the woman's thumb, where it met the wrist. The skin was tinged orange and paler compared to the dark brown surrounding it. That's called the anatomical snuffbox. Tabinda lowered her hand. I used to snort real homegrown tobacco in my younger days. See? Place a pinch in there and snuff it right up. Quit about ten years ago when my doctor found a spot in my mouth. He took it out, biopsied it, turned out it was precancerous. And that was the end of that. She nodded to herself and turned back to the river. Nora watched the sun paint the woman's cheek golden. They'd talked a few times before, shared a few superficialities about families. Nor told her about her mother back in the U.S., and how long it had been since she'd seen her, how difficult it was to live a translocated life. Tabinda told her about her marriage to a wife-beater in Lahore, and how she escaped by moving a thousand miles away to teach Pakistan studies to this unruly military lot in Pataro. Commiserated about Noor's transfer from Karachi to this shithole town, as she put it, she had a Punjabi accent and a nasal voice. Nora found it easy to like her. She was so jaded and sassy. Looking forward to exploring the ruins, Miss Hamdani, said Tabinda. Nor, please. Nor, sorry, at my age it's difficult to discard old habits. I'm used to calling all these men by last name. Creates that distance, doesn't it? Yes, distance can be quite useful in this place, Tabinda said, her eyes invisible from sun glare in her spectacles. When did you start working here? Oh, about 15 years ago. The faculty didn't make you feel unwelcome? Of course they did. That's what men do. But I also try not to get in their way. The rebuke was subtle but unmistakable. Nor stared between the moss-covered trunks of the bus across the road. What they were doing, it was wrong. Bloodshed and sacrifice is a way of life here. Has been for centuries. They don't know any better, Nor said. I can't stand the sight of blood, but that wasn't why I stepped in. Teach kids to enjoy violence and they'll carry that lesson to the grave. Tabinda laughed. The sound was deep-throated and made her jowls jiggle. Half these cadets will be dead before they hit 30. That's the nature of their game. In their hearts, they know it and it makes them arrogant. She turned and walked toward the bus. She was agile for her age. Her voice carried back. This has always been a land of heroes and monsters, Miss Hamdani. Here, you pick your battles. A soft wind soughed through the spider cloud, making the dead shudder. Insect dust pattered down on Noor's shoulders. She brushed it away. You're wrong, she wanted to say. This is exactly how it begins. Hand them a weapon and tell them to man up, and that's the way to the mother load of horror. But of course she said nothing. She had come upon them by accident the day before during her morning walk. The boy's name was Abar, and he was holding the trust goat down with his knees, digging into its well-fed side. Two other boys Nor didn't know joined him, each squatting to hold the goat's legs firmly. The animal, one of the beautiful, tall, Rajanpur breed with spotted ears and a milky body, 
bleated and thwacked its head on the bleached summer grass under the Kikar acacia. The sight made Noor's blood pound, and she found herself stomping toward the trio. Hey, she called across the football field. What do you think you're doing? The two newcomers flinched as boys will on hearing a teacher's voice and looked up. A bar just smiled and jerked the goat's head back by the ears. Sergeant's orders, he yelled, and positioned the slaughter knife across the animal's throat. The blade glinted silver. It threw a dancing shadow across the green, and Noor's vision rippled. For a moment, she didn't know where she was, and anger swept over her. Put that goddamn knife down, now. She was only 10 feet away, and her voice boomed in the narrow grove of trees dividing the football and hockey grounds. The newcomers dropped the goat's legs and sprinted away, but a bar didn't move. He pressed the animal's head down, an ugly grimace of anger and effort on his face. What's the matter, Miss Hamdani? Junaid had materialized from behind the grove of trees. In his hands, he held half a dozen steel skewers, a chopping knife, and a cutting block. Without taking his eyes off Noor, he set these next to the acacia and mopped his brow dramatically. How can we help you on this fine Eid day? Did you ask the boys to do this? Do what? Slaughter animals on their own. He lifted his eyebrows in mock surprise. Yes. Why? Where's the butcher? Sick. Off duty. Does it matter? It's sooner to slaughter your own animals, isn't it? He grinned at her. He had what her dad used to call a copstash mustache. A thick wad of hair that bristled at either end. With his crew-cut hair, it made him look like a thug. Tell me again what the prophet said about teaching mercy. He pointed at the bleeding goat. That is mutton. You eat it every day. I'm vegan. And today's eat. Someone has to slaughter the animal to commemorate Ibrahim's gratitude to God for sparing his son's life. Could it be Nismel under that knife? Then we'd all be in a boatload of trouble sacrificing our sons and all, wouldn't we? All I'm doing is teaching our glorious cadets to do it themselves. Very important, learning to steal your heart. She wanted to punch him. They're kids. They need to learn kindness before cruelty. His eyes were chips of hot mica. Not my cadets. Not in these times. And this is not cruelty. He placed the skewers crisscross on the wooden block. It's necessity. Helpless, Nora glanced at a bar. The boy was smiling, a cold, twisting sneer that was frighteningly familiar. The feeling of unreality, of red-hot memory resurged. Nor turned and strode away, blinking away the warmth in her eyes. Behind her rose the chant, in the name of God. And the animal was screaming, a loud, gargling sound. If she kept walking, Nor thought she could outpace the sound, walk away before steam rises from the animal's throat in the winter air, before the red curtain drops in front of her eyes and the strange staring faces emerge, one of which will be Meneer's. Always his. As she fled, the sound was cut off suddenly. Then there was chopping. Talmor is my home. My family have worked the land for generations. My gran says the island does not belong to us, but we belong to the island. And we must be ready, for a great evil is coming, and death follows with it. Listen and subscribe to the latest season of Undertow, The Harrowing, a story glass production presented by Realm, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
GZM Shows and the creators of Six Minutes are rolling out their newest audio adventure with the podcast Discovering Dad. A cautious single dad with a secret past and his rebellious kids embark on a thrilling quest complete with hidden treasure, villains, and a family curse. New episodes of Discovering Dad roll out weekly starting June 11th on Apple Podcasts. Follow the show so you never miss an episode. Or listen early and ad-free as a GZM Show subscriber. Go to gzmshows.com to learn more. Through a thicket of trees, they trundled into the low-lying areas of Mohenjo-Daro. The Sindh River curled a blue finger around the plateau in the distance. Tabinda pointed out dull, squat structures that formed the mounds on the ruins' outskirts. Pariahs lived in some of these, she said. The museum at Mahendro-Daro was a solid red brick building with life-sized bronze replicas of ancient relics flanking its entrance. Two hundred meters away, in the desolate sprawl of the ruins, the Buddhist stupa rose from the giant mound like a skin-colored tumor. Junaid and Tabinda disembarked to set up a picnic lunch, leaving Nora and the cadets to hurry into the museum. Had you come in spring, said the curator, it would have taken you eight hours to get here from the college. You chose wisely, but still this late? Nora fingered the seated priest-king statuette the curator had been showing the class. A tiny resin replica with pressed lips, closed eyes, and a gouged nose. A crack ran down its forehead to the left cheek. Why, what happens in spring? The curator glanced at the wall clock. It was quarter past 11. He scratched the crab-shaped mole on his cheek. The Sawar Fair, hundreds of pilgrims from villages all over the Indus Valley, converge on the saint's tomb in the Baluchistan Hills. They travel by foot and donkey carts and often clog up the roads all the way from Dadu to Sakkar. The soil of Sindh is filled with miracles and magic. His voice was monotonal, as if he were reciting from a textbook. His eyes didn't leave the clock. Nor placed the resin figure back on the counter. What time does the museum close? The man sighed. He was short and swarthy, dressed in a checkered Adrak shirt, white shalwar, and an embroidered Cindy cap. His name tag said Farouk. As he looked at the massive teenage boys loitering about the lobby, Distaste crept into his face. Now, it's not even noon. It's Eid. We're usually closed for the holidays. I made an exception for the cadet college because I was told we'd be done by ten. Oh. She didn't know what to say. They had been delayed at a military checkpoint in Dadu. Apparently, a suicide blast had occurred at a small mosque in the outskirts of Kerpur, killing an elderly woman and her two grandchildren. The area was flooded by police and army personnel. Checkpoints had been established at various junctures from Larkana all the way to their college at Pitaro. The military was worried about a follow-up attack. Junaid said he wasn't surprised. Most terrorist attacks happened in double strikes, a well-known MO used by the Taliban as well as the CIA. Sorry, she said to Farouk, who was fingering his mole, but we traveled a long way for this. Most cadets go home during holidays, but they... She pointed at the boys, peering at a representation of the famous bronze dancing girl of Mohenjo-Daro and rows of clay urns lining the glass cases. Had no one to take them. Either their families are away or they have no families. So a few of us volunteered. Yes, yes. Farouk waved his hand impatiently. Spare me heartbreaking accounts of army orphans. I'll give you a quick tour. Is this your entire party? Where's Miss Tabinda? She's the one who caught me. Nora glanced to the exit. Junaid and Tabinda were setting up lunch. She felt guilty that she couldn't help with such chores. Her inability to speak Cindy prevented communication with the bus driver whose Urdu was rudimentary. She wished the older professor could at least take the tour. The Mahendro-Daro trip was her idea. Seems like we're the only ones for now. Farouk nodded glumly. This way, then, we'll start with the memories of the ancients display. 
She nudged the cadets and they followed him up the northern corridor. His voice echoed as they passed through an arched doorway into a long hall flanked by glass cabinets on either side. Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Indus Valley are the three earliest civilizations of the old world. China came later and all, of course, developed along water bodies. We used to believe they evolved and thrived in isolation, but now we know that Indus Valley and Mesopotamia traded with each other for centuries. He pointed left and right at carnelian necklaces, sculptures, gemstone beads, ivory combs, and brass containers with traces of herbal collyrium. Nora's belly cramped suddenly. Period pains? But she wasn't due for another week. It would explain the headache she had earlier that morning. Wincing, she rubbed her abdomen. Discovered in 1922 by an officer of the Archaeological Survey of India, Mohenjo-Daro is thought to have been the most important city of the Indus Valley Civilization. Spread out over 250 acres on a series of mounds, its heyday was from 2500 to 1900 B.C. It was suddenly abandoned then. No one knows why. Nora glanced over her shoulder. The kids looked suicidally bored. They drifted behind her, listless, eyes glazed. The Pashtun boy, Dara, had his nose pressed against a cabinet, palms splayed against the glass, but she thought his reflected green stare was fixed on her. His biceps bulged on either side of his head. A Buddhist monastery was discovered atop the city's main citadel. You can still see the stupa. We don't know why the builders decided to erect it there hundreds of years after the city was abandoned, but most of Mahenjo-Daro still lies underground. The mounds grew organically over centuries as people built platforms and walls for their houses. The name Mohenjo-Daro means mounds of the dead in Sindhi. Farouk waved at a ceiling-high stucco wall, covered with black and white and sepia photographs. A flicker of interest went through the cadets. They crowded around aerial and ground views of the ruins. Nor had seen these in slideshows Tabinda put on before the trip. She went to Dara, who hadn't moved. He edged left to allow her to lean against the cabinet. This close, he was taller than her. He smelled of sweat and cologne. I'm sorry about the other day, she said in a low voice. I didn't mean to barge in on you two like that. The tips of Dara's brown ears darkened. She could see the tension in his bunched neck and shoulder muscles. And here boomed the curator's voice, is the most famous statue found in Mohenjo-Daro. You might have seen the priest-king's picture in textbooks on Indus civilization. This is a detailed replica made from a mold of the real thing kept in the National Museum in Karachi. It's okay, really, Nor told Dara. The boy's fingers had closed over the edge of the cabinet. I won't tell anyone. Some of my friends back in the U.S. were like you. One of them was bullied and ended up struggling with depression for years. Her gaze went to the cadets gathered around the pictures. What would they do if they found out about this kid or his friend, currently away during winter break? She didn't want to imagine. Seized by instinct, she lifted the corner of her hijab and hissed at him. We all have secrets. Look. He didn't turn to face her, but his eyes flicked in her direction. They widened when he saw her left shoulder. Some think the priest king is neither a king nor a man. Some believe this is in fact a woman of considerable importance to the people of Mohenjo-Daro, a high priestess or maybe a eunuch who led their religious rituals. We all have secrets, Nor said again. Dara looked at her with wary eyes. He was a quiet backbencher, rarely said a word. His grades were average. She used to wonder if he was slow. She dropped her hijab into place. Dara wrapped a knuckle against the glass and his eyes were green fires. You don't know anything, he whispered fiercely, turned and fled down the hall. She watched him go.
then walked back to join the cadets peering at something in a glass case. Farouk glanced up as she approached. So glad you could join us. He adjusted the Cindy cap on his head. I was just telling this young man about Seal 34. Dr. Gregory Fossil of University of Pennsylvania believes it represents a sacrifice ritual. Care to listen in? She watched him unlock the case and withdraw two artifacts. In one hand, he held a reproduction of the tan soapstone seal. The boys murmured and jostled to get closer. A tall, angular deity with a horned headdress and bangles on both arms stood atop a fig tree. With a gleeful face, it looked down on a kneeling worshiper. Nearby was a small stool on which lay a human head. Seal 34 is taken as evidence by some that human sacrifice was practiced as a fertility rite in this region, similar to such offerings to Kali in certain parts of India. Nora looked at the seal. Below the kneeling worshiper were a giant ram and seven figures in procession. They wore single-plumed headdresses, bangles, and long skirts. The sight chilled her. It was so brutal and somber. Her belly cramped again. Dr. Fossil, however, has argued that the presence of Pashupati's seal. Farouk held up the stone in his other hand. It showed a naked figure, with three grim faces and ram horns seated on a stool, surrounded by deer, rhinoceros, and elephants means that the people of Indus had the option to proffer animals as substitutes for humans. Pashupati, someone chortled. Nor glanced up. It was Abar, the boy who had slaughtered the goat on Junaid's orders. He had a malicious grin on his face. What kind of faggot name is that? He elbowed a friend. One of Shiva's names. The curator glared at him. His incarnation as the Lord of Beasts. Both boys burst out laughing. A few others smiled uneasily. That's enough, Nora told the boys. Giggling, they strolled down the hall. Sorry about that, she said to Farouk. His face was pinched and red. That's the sort of kids we're raising now. Forget it. It's closing time anyway. He muttered something inaudible and led them back to the lobby. At the exit, Nora flashed a smile and said, thank you for the tour. Very educational. He nodded and began to shut the door. Every place has its secret flavor, Nora said through the door opening. Here's a question I always ask curators and guides. She touched his sleeve and smiled brightly. Tell us one thing about the site you normally wouldn't tell visitors. He looked at her with a cocked eyebrow. Lady, you are not from Sindh, are you? Not a difficult observation, I guess, but why do you say that? A local wouldn't ask me that question. His gaze went over her shoulder, past the verdigris laced brass statue of the dancing girl of Mahendro Daro, with an emaciated hand on her hip at the entrance, across the rocky slope. He stared at the citadel mound visible from the museum steps. What does it matter? I'll tell you two things, he said, lowering his voice. First, on the day of the goat, no one from Lakana district will stay in these ruins past dusk, not even the watchman. The day of the goat. Second, his eyes gleamed in the doorway. Incessantly, he picked at his mole until a drop of blood appeared below its twisted spidery shape. Why don't you ask Mr. Binder about Devil Glass? Ask her why she and her crew stopped the restoration dig here in 2001. What? Nor stared at him, but he was already stepping back in, slamming the door, slipping the bolts, and she was left on the doorstep with her cadets milling noisily about her. They dipped shirmal in chicken and lentil soup and chased it down with yogurt lassi. Junaid described the strategic importance of the site's location near a body of water, but no one was interested. The cadets were restless. They wanted to explore. Nora's eyes were riveted on Tabinda, who was quietly munching a piece of bread, her gaze never far from the ruins. 
A cold wind followed them up the dusty gravel path, winding between the Citadel Mound and Lower Town. Two miles west of the Citadel was lush farmland. Odd that no human dots speckled the furrowed fields. They hadn't seen any ox carts, motorbikes, or bicycles on the road leading into the city either. Nor assumed the laborers and farmhands had taken the day off for Eid. Her belly had settled and she felt more cheerful. The farmland was separated from the salty sediment of the ruins by a levee. Tabinda said this was reinforced every year to help control the annual flooding. Not that it always works. Last year, heavy floods topped the levees and brought the white crab spiders out, she smiled. The locals fear those spider trees, let me tell you. They think them a terrible omen. Omen? Of what? Apparently, there's a folktale about demon cattle that feed on the leaves of such trees. Some time ago, Karachi University published a survey showing that in certain years, coinciding with old Sindhi lunar calendars, animal sacrifice activity intensifies in this region. Tabinda rubbed her knuckles. The fact that the floods nearly destroyed the site last year doesn't help ease their minds about evil forewarnings. She was correct about the damage. By now, the city proper had closed around them like a bony fist, and the narrow alley they walked was flanked by massive, crumbling buildings, topped with mud slurry for preservation. Windows gaped in the brick houses laid in a perfect grid. Some houses with exterior staircases that led to the second floor had chipped and eroded steps. The city's smell hit Noor. Salinity and dust, flood water and age, and for a moment she felt as if she were falling, collapsing inside a claustrophobic funnel down into nothing. The feeling passed, leaving her slightly dizzy. The cadets began to meander. A few headed to the alley leading up to the Citadel Mound. Nor let Junaid uselessly attempt to herd them together and strode to catch up with the elderly professor, walking briskly as ever. You didn't tell me you used to be an archaeologist, she said. Tabenda frowned. She was holding a palm against her mouth, two fingers pinching her nostrils. The edges of her eyelids behind her spectacles were pink. I hate this weather. Winter brings out all my allergies. She sneezed and rubbed her nose. I'm not an archaeologist. I assume Farouk told you something. The man couldn't keep his mouth shut if you sealed it with mortar. She went up a stone staircase and lowered herself onto a platform, jutting from the roof, Nora sat down beside her. He said you were involved with a dig here. Yes, as consultant anthropologist. Greg Fossil and I were working on restoring parts of the site's drainage system. You'd be surprised how extensive it was. One wondered why they went to such lengths for a city this small. She dangled her legs back and forth, her face thoughtful. Then again, most of it remains underground, according to sonar sweeping. Why'd you stop? Tabinda patted the edge of the platform. Circumstances. Together they gazed at the ruins sprawling around them. In the lower part of the city, between copses of trees and rocks, was more evidence of water damage. Caving walls, piles of broken masonry, weathered facades. Here and there the rubble twinkled. Nor said, What did Farouk mean about devil glass? The professor's black eyes were glazed and inward. Vitrified pottery, of course. Sediment and relics turned to ceramic glass by extreme temperatures. I don't understand. Tabendo laughed. The sound echoed in the alleys as if it came from within the ruins. Why would you want to? It's only of interest to old farts like me. She rose and made her way to the staircase. Why did he call it devil glass? Tabinda stood at the top step, her silhouette dark and bloated against the sun. She seemed to be transfixed by the ruins again. Behind her, the stupa and the citadel mound thrust against a desolate winter sky, empty of birds. When the site was first discovered, she said in a flat voice, the excavators found piles of glass spheros and silica chunks like those found in Libya and the Sahara. In some places, large craters were present. 
It was assumed that either meteor impact or plasma discharges from lightning had melted the minerals. Fused soil into glass. None of which, of course, explains the hundreds of human skeletons lying bleached in the streets and alleys on top of the glass heaps. What? Nora pushed herself up from the edge. Two streets away, one of the cadets was pissing in the shadow of the ancient wall. His shalwar pulled around his ankles. She couldn't tell who. She wanted to yell at him, but the urge was gone as suddenly as it had come. God. What killed them? Who knows? Tabinda turned to face her. She shrugged, but did something flicker in the dark of her eyes? Nora couldn't be sure. Carbon dating approximated it happened around the same time the site was abandoned. The city didn't recover from the catastrophe. Whoever killed those people killed the entire civilization. A gust of wind swept Nora's hijab back, and she stepped away from the platform, chilled and uneasy. Tabinda's fists were clenched by her sides. She said whoever, not whatever, Nora thought. What happened here in 2001? Come on, you obviously have bad memories. We lost three men, all superstitious laborers. One went mad and threw himself off the top of the citadel, smashing his head on the rocks. He was disturbed to begin with. Another just disappeared. The third tried to kill Fossil and was shot and killed by one of the watchmen. Tabenda shivered. It was a dark year, and I had such nightmares. She gave Nor a tired smile. For the first time, Nor noticed a mild droop to the left of her face. An old stroke or nerve palsy? The crease of flesh between her nose and lips was flat. So I left, went back to Pitaro, rejoined the cadet college, I haven't looked back since. Tabinda pushed her spectacles up her nose, squinted, then pointed with a pudgy finger. Junaid was walking toward them, waving both hands. His arms looked strange and loose from up here, Camille's sleeves ballooning and fluttering like desert birds. Nor hesitated, then said, he probably wants us to start gathering the boys. We should leave. Her stomach and flanks tingled. An insistent pressure surged through her lower abdomen. Early, but this was it, no doubt about it now. And she didn't even have pads. Together, they descended the stairs into the lengthening shadows of the city. Nora glanced at her watch. It was three in the afternoon. Junaid finally caught up with them, panting and shaky. Why didn't you answer your phone? he demanded, glaring at Tabinda. My purse is in the bus, she said. Why? We were just about to call the boys, Nora said. He shook his head. No, I don't want to create a situation. What? His face was pale. Colonel Mahmoud just called me. There was a terrorist attack at Cadet College Lakana. At least 50 armed men stormed the premises. Indokri. Nora's hand went to her mouth. But we were just there this morning. Oh my God, are people hurt? Ten dead, and they're holding the surviving cadets and teachers hostage. Two military contingents just left for the town. But that's not the worst of it. Armies got word that a twin attack's been planned on Pataro as well. They're targeting cadet schools for maximum reportage. His manicured fingers rubbed his throat. Mahmoud doesn't want us to return. He wants us to stay here and go to the army base in Saka when possible. Saka? Tabinda's voice was full of incredulity. That's 150 kilometers away. How will we get past Dokri? The road to Saka goes through the city. I know that. Don't you think I know that? His voice was getting louder and a pair of cadets turned their heads. Lashke Jangvi? Tabinda said in a low voice. No, Pakistani Taliban. How far to Sucker if we go south first and take a detour? Nor said. Junaid's nostrils flared. Four hours by bus. 
so at least ten to twelve on foot. She imagined trudging on the cracked, unpaved road under a moonless sky as night fell and surrounded them on all sides. The thought was unpleasant and ridiculous, and she pushed it away. They had a bus and a bus driver, and these were cadets, not kindergarten kids. Did you talk to the driver? Debinda said. What did he say? He wants to leave. He knows the area well and says he could take back roads, but look, the problem is the goddamn Taliban. He spat in the dust. They have spies everywhere. Until it's certain the townsfolk won't snitch on us, Mahmud doesn't want us to leave Mohenjo-Daro. There is an airstrip five kilometers west of here. Worst case, if the hostage situation doesn't clear up, he can call for a large dropper to airlift us out. Stuck in the ruins. Nora cast a glance at Tabenda. Her face was a mask. Junaid sounded distracted. It's cold, but there are blankets in the bus and food, and I can get a fire going. We'll tell the boys it's an Eid bonfire. Damn it, he said through gritted teeth. I want to be there with the rangers. Lakana's my school. Our first responsibility is to the students, don't you think? Tabenda said. Besides, you wouldn't leave two women alone with a dozen kids in this place, would you? His fingers tugged at his mustache. The ends bristled. I guess not. Good. We need to be calm and think this through. Don't tell me to be calm. I am calm. Of course you are, Tabinda said, speaking each word slowly, and Nora looked at her again. The professor had steel in her eyes. Her lips twitched when she smiled at Junaid. Tell you what, see the Citadel Mount? It used to be a giant communal bath for the city. There's a rocky grotto right below it. Good place for a fire pit. Why don't you get it going there? I have chickpeas and nuts. We can roast them and tell ghost stories and pretend we're on a camping trip. Junaid's eyes were riveted on Tabinda. The panic had left his face and that mean, arrogant look had returned. Don't be fucking condescending, you hear me? He swiveled on his heel and stalked off toward the bus. Tabinda watched him go, then turned to Nor. Her cheeks were blanched, the facial droop more pronounced. This is bad. Yes. This is very bad, Tabinda said and licked her lips. We shouldn't be here after dusk. Again, that feeling that sensation of her mind separating from her flesh and eddying down a dusty funnel. Nora's head blazed, pain streaking through her like a dull saw. Dizzy and nauseated, she shot out a hand to clutch a nearby wall. Okay, Debinda was saying. Nora leaned against the wall and closed her eyes. I think so. What happened? I don't know. She tried to control her breathing and it whistled down her throat. I get cluster headaches sometimes. Maybe it's my period triggering it. She massaged her temples with both hands. Her right eye was beginning to water. What are we going to tell the kids? I don't know. We'll think of something. Let's go before they think the city ate us alive. They trudged between the battered walls, corralling boys along the way. Nor noticed something odd. It felt as if there were more kids dashing, jumping, peering out from behind tall, uneven walls and skidding through the dust than a mere dozen. Other tourists? She hadn't seen any vehicles, except for the sight watchman's Honda bike, lolling on a rusty kickstand in the gravel lot. Certainly the two figures, so tall their heads brushed against the doorframe, who goggled at her from one of the houses, then danced back into the gloom, were not their boys. She rubbed her watering eye and continued walking until they reached the bus. Junaid and the bus driver, Hamid, were talking. They fell silent when the cadets approached, but Nora didn't miss the uneasiness in the driver's face and the way he muttered when he thought no one was looking his way. Is Hamid from around here? She asked Tabinda as the kids settled around the heap of firewood. The driver? Don't know, why? Just wondering... He didn't seem too keen on staying here tonight. Tell him to join the club, Tabinda said dryly. She was squatting next to the Pashtun boy, Dara, her back to the Citadel's eastern wall. The structure towered above them, 
its shadow pawing the network of alleys that branched and twisted into the city's labyrinth and heart. They were shelling chickpeas and walnuts and tossing the husks inside a metal bowl. Dara had wandered over after Nora and Tabinda cleared broken masonry and stones from the excavated grotto and volunteered to help. He kept his eyes away from Nora's, but she was glad to see him. She looked across the plateau toward the bus parked by a clump of rocks in the visitor lot and was startled to discover how dusk had whittled the day down to an unsettling purple. The shadows were long and jagged. She could hardly make out the driver carrying stacks of blankets from the bus. He and Junaid had roused the cadets into two wood scavenging teams, and they'd piled acacia and poplar twigs crisscross with kindling on top. Nor doubted it would last more than a few hours, but it was better than nothing. Most boys had college sweaters on anyway. Navy blue cardigans and blankets would serve the rest. The remains of the picnic basket had been spread out. Canoes and apples, raw peanuts, walnuts, and channa chickpeas, all ready to be roasted. Really, they were all set to face the cold night. So why this uneasiness in her body? Her bones felt knobby and sharp against the stony ground, her limbs filled with tar. Junaid knelt down by them. Is your phone working? He said in a low voice. What do you mean? Tabinda said. Is your damn phone working? I can't reach Mahmoud. Tabinda flicked a peanut shell into the bowl and pulled her Nokia out. She peered at it, raised it high, and frowned. That's strange. I have no signal bars. Me neither. I can't reach anyone. Weather, you think? Junaid lifted a hand and rubbed his cheek. It's not raining and there's no storm. Tabinda's eyes widened. No. Junaid nodded miserably. What? Nora said. Junaid looked at Dara, who was quietly peeling nuts and got up. Nora understood. Rubbing her hands together, she rose and followed him until they were a safe distance away. They blew up the signal towers, Junaid said without preamble. Nora stared at him. What? Junaid bent his knee and placed a boot against the jagged edge of the house behind him. Cellular base stations. The closest is in Dokri, with a network of small booster towers along the way. I'll bet you anything most of them are gone, which means the fighting is closer than I thought. He sagged a little. We're stuck here unless they send an air carrier, or you can drive back. You're suggesting it? No. We don't know what's going on out there. This place is safer at the moment. Nora opened her mouth, closed it. Her gaze went to the vast, empty buildings towering above her. It was quite dark now, the sun just a blood smear on the horizon, and the houses of Mohenjo-Daro pressed together. Broken platforms poked and plunged unevenly. Black and formless holes gaped in the walls. Above, an icteric moon sat distorted by a low cloud bank, it's light, not a promise, but mere possibility. We've got to tell the kids now. Yes. Nora shifted her weight. The icy evening wind cut through her chemise and woolen shawl. She shivered, her abdomen tensed. She hadn't begun bleeding yet, but she would soon. Let's get it over with, she said. They returned to the bonfire. The cadets gathered around and listened to Junaid. Their faces were shocked and delighted by this new excitement. Spend the night in the ruins? Eagerly, they asked how long the trouble would last. I don't know yet, Junaid shook his head. We'll just have to be patient. They left the boys chattering and walked to the bus, where Hamid, the bus driver, was talking with the site watchman, a bald, paunchy man with a pockmarked face. The watchman swept a hand toward the mounds and it triggered another round of debate between the two. What's going on, Nor said. Hamid lifted his head. He was tall and very gangly, features chiseled and filed by many summers spent in this unforgiving land. He wore a cotter chudder around his shoulders in the fashion of northern Pashtuns. He stared at Nor through narrowed, coal-lined eyes, then turned to Junaid and spoke rapidly in Cindy. What's he saying? Junaid pressed his hands together. Slowly, he began to crack his knuckles. He says the watchman wants us to leave. He's leaving as well and won't be back for three days. 
The museum curator was right. The locals didn't linger here on, what had Farouk said? The day of the goat. Nora looked at Tabinda, who was studying the darkening sky. Why? Superstition. They don't like this place at night. The watchman muttered something, and even in the moonlight, Nora saw color drain from the bus driver's face. He whispered to Junaid, who spoke back angrily. Two cadets who'd followed them here giggled. Chariyo Hamid, Gidi Hamid, they cried. Nor knew Gidi. They were calling him a coward. Hamid turned and yelled at them, and they laughed and ambled away. Nor didn't like the sound of that laughter. It had a tinge of hysteria about it. Hamid and the watchman stood together, shoulder to shoulder, their faces stubborn and scared. Malya suji waya ahain ajrat, said the watchman. Hamid flinched and began to murmur what sounded like a prayer. Will you please tell me what they're saying? Nor hissed at Junaid. Rubbish. He pulled out his cell phone and looked at the corner of the screen and grimaced. The dead swell here tonight, he muttered. What fucking nonsense. The cold was making Nor's skin tingle. She glanced at Tabinda. She was looking away from the confrontation at the rows of dilapidated buildings, ancient and silent on the plateau. Hamid said something and Junaid snapped at him. The driver threw up his hands. The watchman closed his fist and flung all his fingers out at Junaid, a gesture Nora understood without need for translation. Go to hell. Then he turned and disappeared behind the mounds. Hamid glared at the three of them, spat something out in Cindy and climbed into the bus. He turned the key and began to rev the accelerator. Is he leaving? Nor said, alarmed. Junaid's face was furious and helpless. Yes, he'll leave without us if we don't go now. We've got to gather everyone. The fire was guttering out when they got back to the boys. Burning wood crackled and orange flames edged with black turned the cadets' faces sly and shadowy when Junaid announced they were leaving. We can't go yet, said one in a gruff voice, a freckled rat-faced boy named Tabriz whom Nora recognized as part of a bar's posse. We need to wait. What do you mean? Junaid said sharply. Wait for whom? The boy popped a handful of roasted chickpeas into his mouth, crunched them. They said they had read about a secret room in the ruins. Went treasure hunting. Abba and Rahim. Seeing Junaid's aghast expression, he smiled sweetly and added, Don't worry, they have torches and shovels. Quite a beginning. Usman's imagery is so vivid, I literally felt myself transported to the ruins he describes. Not only transported, but also to a very specific violent time period in Pakistan's recent history. I think that only adds to the realism of their world compared with the ancient mythic qualities of the ruins. Yeah, and Usman raises the tension level so incrementally, and it never stops. My anxiety level just kept rising as the story progressed. Yeah, it's kind of like that metaphor of the, the frog in the boiling pot. You don't know oh, totally. until it's too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he sets up the stakes so well. And we just feel super invested in Nora and Tabinda making sure those students can stay safe. Yeah, and, and oh my God, the narration. Shiromi Arserio does an incredible job balancing all these accents. And she really brings the scary to her performance. Yeah, and this narration gets even more intense the further we go along. Let's leave it there for now. We'll have more to say about this story next time when we return for part two. Diana, thanks as always for sharing the terror. <laughs> well, with these unsettling stories, it's nice not to listen to them alone, to be honest. And if you like what you're hearing, please drop us a five-star review wherever you listen to this episode and join us again next time for part two of In the Ruins of Mohenjo-Daro. Pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we 
are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 46, features In the Ruins of Mahenjo-Daro by Usman T. Malik. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw and executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Diana M. Foe. Performed by Sharomi Arsario. Audio produced by Spoken Realms. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.